where liberty is our mission. Today is Saturday, January 10th, 2015. How can that be? And this is podcast number 388. Very quick announcements. As I've been saying for the last few podcasts, we are in the process of winding down the Bad Quaker podcast, and I'm going to be moving over uh, to support uh, Michael Dean and the Freedom Fiends and the other co-hosts over there on real radio going coast-to-coast in 30-some, 35, something like that radio stations across North America. And um, so as we do that, uh, if you're on the, the Bad Quaker Forum, be sure and get over and read the updates over there as to how this is all going to take place. We are... A quick update on the uh, archiving. We're looking at uh, several different methods. We've got several people that have contacted us. We're looking at torrents. We're looking at a very innovative method that uh, that uh, one of our listeners has come up with. And so, uh, and and here's a really strange request. If you've been listening to the last few podcasts, you've heard me say this before. We want to end the funding of the Bad Quaker podcast. So, if you have an automatic deduction in a PayPal setup, please actively go in and kill that because we're going to be killing all of the uh, the funding for Bad Quaker. And there's plenty of places. I know you're like, wow, what am I going to do with my money now if I can't give it to Bad Quaker? I know that's a, a real dilemma that a person would think, like, I don't know. What I, what could I possibly do with my money? Well, you know, one possible way is Freedom Fiends. They take donations. Um, our guests today are going to be talking about the Fully Informed Jury Association. I'm sure they'd be happy to take your donations. And there's plenty of other good ways that you can, uh, you know, make your money do something for, for our cause and for this mission. So with that, oh, and I want to give one more teaser for an upcoming episode of the Bad Quaker podcast that's going to be um, sort of the bookend to finish this podcast. And that will be with my daughter and co-host Kai. And we're going to try to wrap this all up, and it's probably going to be a big two- or three-hour podcast to try to cover everything and wrap it all up. Um, before that time, and we're looking at that within the next few weeks, before that time, at least one more guest, Bill Bupert, is going to come on with me. And we're going to, Bill and I are going to kick around some things. It's always fun to talk to Bill. He stretches my brain. He makes me think, if nothing else, to try to remember all the interesting words that he uses and and uh, and remember the definitions uh, from way back 30 years ago, the last time I heard some of those words. So um, so that leads us into today's guests. Today, uh, I am very thrilled to have two good friends, uh, Jim Babb, James Babb with me, and George Donnelly. And we're going to be talking about the Fully Informed Jury Association. Jim and George, welcome back to the Bad Quaker Podcast. 
Great to be with you. Yeah, it's a real pleasure, but say it ain't so. I love the Bad Quaker (laughs) podcast. Well, all things have to come to an end. Um, Yeah, and I should mention, too, uh, we just kind of all talked on each other, and this is I'm going to give a shout-out to a product that is now available for the public that is free to download, um, and that's called Fiend Phone. If you listen to me over at the Freedom Fiends, you're going to hear Michael talking about this all the time. This is a product that can replace um, Skype. It's free to download. It's in the beta version right now, so it's still going to have some bugginess to it. But it's we're we're it, new versions are coming out like every couple days. So uh, if you're not sure about it, don't download it yet. But get over to uh, fiendphone.com and read about it. It's really interesting. It one of the wonderful things about Fiendphone is you can have two or three or more people, and they can all talk at the same time. And unlike Skype, uh, it doesn't decide which one to to let through. It lets everybody talk at the same time. It does that without the burden of a lot of the a lot of the cumbersomeness that Skype loads onto your computer. In addition to Skype being owned by Microsoft, and I won't even go into that. And in addition to all those other things, uh, Fiendphone is a very low bandwidth and it takes very little of your computer's uh, computing capabilities to run. So it's a very simple program as opposed to Skype, which can be a bit intrusive. And uh, and eventually we're even going to have an encrypted version of, I say we, I'm just on the sidelines cheering. You know, I, I've got on my little cheerleader outfit and I'm cheering on the sidelines for this. I'm not actually involved in it. but uh, But the guys that are putting it together... They're, they're looking at making an encryption version, but all that's down the road. So really excited about that. Okay, so now to our point. The reason I have Jim and George on today is so that we can talk about, among other things, fully informed jury association, how important this is, and what's going on with it in New York City. So let's start with Jim. Uh, Jim, what's going on in New York City with the fully informed jury association? Okay, well, we have a, a campaign to educate the public about their rights if selected for jury duty. And that right, uh, in particular, is the right to say not guilty if the juror finds the law to be unjust or misapplied. And this is a, a centuries-old tradition. It's a cornerstone of our justice system. And it is imperative that people understand that if they get jury duty, they have this power. So we have uh, we have six kiosk ads surrounding the courthouse in southern Manhattan and a pamphleting campaign which began last Monday and is going to be continuing off and on throughout the month of January to support that. So um, in addition to that, uh, George has created a great website at uh, juryrightsproject.com which has more information for people and an educational course people can sign up for. So, uh, this, the campaign has been going great. We crowdsourced the funding. Um, George built a great Indiegogo page and really pushed it out into the different Reddit circles, which generated, uh, over $4,000 worth of contributions, most of it in Bitcoin. Uh, so I'm, I'm very, uh, very excited about the campaign and the support it's getting. Now, uh, say that name again of the website. It was Jury Rights. What was that again? Juryrightsproject.com. Okay, and I'll put a link to uh, to that in today's show notes in addition to a link to the Fully Informed Jury 
uh, website, which is fija.org. And is the Indiegogo campaign still uh, alive, or is it already completed? Um, right now, we're, we're extending the uh, – we raised the, the initial goal to raise the money for the first month of this campaign, but now we're raising money for the second month, and I'm pretty sure that's going to happen. Uh, we're trying to get February covered and expand the campaign. So, yeah, people can definitely still contribute. Um, you know, we want to keep this going as long as we can. The uh, You can go right – you can get the links for the Indiegogo page at the juryrightsproject.com slash NYC. Okay, and I'll uh, see if I can't put a, a link to the Indiegogo campaign as well in today's show notes. Um, all right, so we've got, uh, let me just restate those websites. FIJA.org. We've got fully, uh, we've got juryrightsproject.com and then the uh, Indiegogo campaign that we'll link to. Um, now I want to point out a couple things, uh, here before we get going too far because it's you know one of the oddities of the internet and I, I've talked about this a little bit here recently you know if you have a uh, a podcast that's the uh, the everything about transmissions podcast and you know uh, you have an expert on transmissions and he's talking about fixing transmissions then one of the often things that the internet will produce is somebody that's very upset that you're not giving the proper amount of uh, discussion to mag wheels, you know, and, and it's like, yeah, okay, we're not saying there's anything wrong with your 1970s style mag wheels. We're just saying that this particular discussion is about transmissions. And with any discussion on the Internet, it, it tends – somebody will take it in this kind of a, 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 a direction where it's like, you know, yeah, but you're not talking about my pet thing right now. Well, fully informed jury association and the idea of jury nullification, as Jim just got through saying, is something that goes all the way back to pre-English uh, understandings of juries. This goes back to Nordic understandings long before, you know, long before there was ever like, okay, so what we understand now of jury nullification kind of comes down to us through the Magna Carta that was uh, was sealed in um, 800 years ago in uh, uh, 1215. Um, John Lachlan, the so-called King of England, was put into a position where he had to essentially either agree to the Magna Carta or face open warfare by the very people that put him in power. And which would have probably meant his death, which eventually happened anyway. But um, but one of the main points of the Magna Carta was to make sure that the that the regular people had a say so in whether or not they were convicted of a crime. And and this is not necessarily the origin of uh, jury nullification, but it was the first time that it was really codified or codified and laid down in writing with a fancy person with an awesome title like King, actually putting his seal on it saying, yes, this is the law of land and I will agree to it. But even before that, the idea that a jury uh, listened to the complaint or listened to the accusation and the, the jury of people, of regular people from the village or from the city or whatever where this event took place could say, no, that law is not right. Or, I know this guy, he couldn't have done that. 
or I don't care what the what the you know uh, sheriff of Nottingham has to say about this. This guy's not going to jail over this event, and that was the original power of this. And you know now, 800 years later, we look at the corruption of the of the entire justice system, and oftentimes you just want to spit on the ground because it's so disgusting. But here's this thing. Jury nullification that comes all the way to us from over 800 years ago that says, hey, this is not a magic cure for everything that's wrong with the justice system, but it's something that a community can do to take this person who's accused of this thing and set him free and make him not have to pay for a quite possibly uh, a law that shouldn't be a law anyway. Um, so that was a lot of rambling, Jim. Uh, you, <laughs> you give me your thoughts on all that. Well, you've made excellent, excellent points, and I agree with everything you said, and that's fantastic. Um, you know, and I, I guess it's, you know, we, we kind of look at this justice system that we have right now, and I guess, you know, people have a lot of different views. If you've only watched TV and movies, you, you think of the justice system as this thing that's heavily weighted to, to, to the defense and this and and just nobly seeking justice and we see that you know and you think like oh you know you're going to get your day in court and everything's going to be great and if you're innocent you go free and if you're not innocent you know you go to jail and and it's you know this wonderful system of uh, you know and all these people are dedicated to this process um and that you know I learned some years ago when I attended my first trial that that's complete fantasy and that that the entire justice system is constructed from the ground up or I should say from the top down to to favor the prosecution everything favors the prosecution every step of the way everything is designed to make it difficult to defend yourself and and to guarantee them as many convictions as possible only a only a tiny percentage of for instance, drug trials or drug cases even go to trial. Most people are so intimidated by the charges uh, that they they will make a plea deal, even if they're innocent, just just because the the potential of a guilty plea could send you to jail for for decades sometimes um, for victimless crimes. So, you know, the more I learned about the the reality of the justice system, the more I, I really wanted to to find a way to you know to make some kind of a difference i've i've just seen too many people's lives destroyed and their their souls just ground to pulp by this machine so when i when i heard about jury nullification i was like wow that's very interesting um you know how come i didn't learn about that in school or how come why don't i see that in the tv dramas or um you know perry mason you know i don't think it ever came up in a perry mason episode <laughs> you know so um but, you know, and it's really exciting, though, because uh, by doing sort of volunteer work in this area, whether it's passing out pamphlets in front of a courthouse, that's really the main thing people can do to help out in this field. Uh, you really have a chance to make an enormous difference in a person's life. You can when you remind jurors that they have this power, you know, their their conscience may awaken and a single juror with a conscience is the only thing in that courtroom that the government doesn't control they they they've locked down everything else and but yet the idea of of a single person saying wait a minute wait that 
I don't think a person should, should go to jail for smoking a joint or having raw milk or taking a gun into New Jersey or whatever they did. Um, it's just, it's just incredibly powerful. And it's just, it's, it's nice to know that there is still this teeny tiny little sliver, this little place that, that, that individuals can have a big difference. Or uh, arrested and and on trial for selling an individual cigarette. Uh, if if you get a trial, if you get a trial for selling an individual well, cigarette, and that's and that's what I think you mentioned this a second ago. I think that's what a lot of people who have never experienced firsthand what the justice system is like. Um, what they will do is uh, they'll come up to you. Or they'll approach you in whatever way to your house or, or through the mail or whatever the process is for whatever the particular naughty thing that you're accused of. And before you realize really what's going on, they're not just uh, giving you a citation for selling an individual cigarette. They have shoved you or pushed you or stepped on your toe or, or told you, you know, put your hands up, put your hands down, freeze, don't move, step over here, all at the same time, giving you five different, six different contradictory orders, and you failed to do every single one of those. So now you're resisting arrest. And before you realize it, you've got so many charges against you, they stack these charges up, and then you're hauled into this room and uh, yelled at or intimidated or called names or anything else, uh, unless you're smart enough to have an attorney and unless you're wealthy enough to have a private attorney there with you, in which case they're essentially doing that kind of intimidation to your attorney, telling him, look, if, if this guy doesn't you know, uh, admit to something, we're going to put him away on all these things. And they end up almost forcing you through either you're going to go in front of a jury of people who, I mean, I'm sorry, but they just couldn't figure out how to get out of jury duty, or they're really old and this is the most exciting thing that's happening to them this month. And you're either going to go before those people and, you know, hope for mercy, or you're going to uh, admit to something you didn't do, we'll slap you on a wrist, on the wrist, we'll put you into our system, you'll pay a small fine, and now you'll be registered with us forever, and we'll come back and hassle you over and over and over. And so, you know, given that kind of a choice, a lot of people, uh, they cop a plea, and they prefer not to go in front of a jury. But what we're talking about here is maybe not a complete salvation for uh for the whole justice system but it can at least provide hope for somebody who is in a situation where they uh they they can't get out of it any other way and they're forced to go in front of a jury but if we can get into the right neighborhoods and get in and get this message to people who are going to be stuck on jury duty one way or the other that they don't have to just uh, cower down to to the intimidations of the judge and the attorneys involved because that's what they do. I've been in jury situations and the and the the judge intim, intimid, intentionally intimidates the jury and makes them. Uh, you know, I the, when I was in this situation, the judge actually told the jury that they they were not there to judge the 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 law; they were only there to judge the specifics of whether the person was guilty or not. And that's a lie. The judge can sit there on his high horse, on his bench with his fancy outfit and lie, and there's no repercussions for that. And unless jurors know what their options are, I mean, it's just a, it's a one-way funnel right into jail for people. 
That's true. Um, you know, and, and I think George has some experience in this area. You know, we should uh, let's let's give in case I find this highly unlikely that a listener of mine doesn't know who Jim Babb and George Donnelly are. But let's give a little history. Uh, George, why don't you tell us what happened with you and Julian and Jim and all the fun that you guys had a few years back there? Well, it was uh, <clears throat> April of uh, 2010, and Julian Heiklin had, um, you know, been going around for several months to courthouses and distributing jury rights pamphlets, and being abused and mistreated and whatnot by police. And so he came to Philadelphia, and he asked for people to accompany him. Jim and I came out, <clears throat> and uh, we had a lot of fun with it. We went to the the Philadelphia courthouse, uh, federal courthouse in downtown Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, a, 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 a court security officer there threatened to shove my camera down my throat, uh, without any provocation on my part at all. And, uh, 17, you know, different officers, local and, uh, federal law enforcement showed up to question us. Canine and, units. uh, yeah, yeah, even a, a canine, you know, and, um, and so that was uh, quite a successful um, outreach, not just that we distributed pamphlets, and um, but that we got some good video, some video that was seen tens of thousands of times and was very popular on Reddit and whatnot. And it really spread the word about uh, jury nullification. So we did that a couple more times. And, um, you know, we were harassed again and showed off the hypocrisy and just the utter stupidity really of these court security officers until we got to uh, Allentown Pennsylvania where uh they uh the you know the uh the front door dogs there were particularly aggressive and uh one of them uh tried to snatch my camera right out of my hand and I I refused to let it go because um it's a brand new camera it cost me $600 uh I I was really fond of it and, uh, you know, so he, he eventually let it go and, uh, there was a big tussle and I shoved it between my legs and, uh, you know, hunched over and a whole bunch of marshals piled on. And, uh, you know, I got the, the knee to my face and, uh, you know, the whole, the whole deal there. They got it away from me and then, um, they didn't arrest me or anything. They were just trying to figure out kind of like, like how that happened, you know? Um, and meanwhile, the guy who attacked me just kind of disappeared, you know, and he, he never appeared again in court documents or anything. Uh, and so I, I, you know, I read a, uh, a government, uh, like a Homeland Security uh, official statement about, you know, recording courthouses in front of courthouses, which, you know, explicitly uh, permitted it. And, uh, and so I pulled out another camera and started recording them again, and they, they ripped it from me again, and then they, they told me I was under arrest. Um, and so I spent a couple nights in, uh, you know, in some cold, uh, prison cells. That was interesting. They, they put me in with a guy who had, uh, was facing 20 years and, uh, had been in a fight, uh, just like the, the previous day. <laughs> and, uh, they put me in the hole in the, the Philadelphia federal prison and, uh, the, the, uh, the marshals going around saying that I was the next Timothy McVeigh. <laughs> Yeah, and meanwhile, folks were calling the uh, the prison and you know, like with a call flood. So the the marshal started calling me superstar, and um, you know, basically they trumped up the these charges about how 
I had, uh, you know, thrown punches or something, which was completely uh, false. And even their their state their charges against me, their statements were self contradictory. And so I was facing eight years in uh, in in prison. Um, and uh, they put me under house arrest, took my passport, uh, took my firearms, and um, and actually got my my uh, carry permit revoked as well. And so it, it was about a, a four month ordeal. You know, I think I, I got off relatively easy. Um, you know, there are people whose trials could be delayed for years. And I, I got a, I was offered a plea deal and, um, you know, basically I, it pled it down to a parking ticket level offense of disobeying a, uh, a law enforcement officer. And I wouldn't have even gotten a jury trial for that. So, so I, I took that and I, I got out of it, got my passport back and all that and my firearms and whatnot. But it was a real education, you know. It was a real education about what these people are capable of, uh, the lies that they're capable of. And uh, the whole time I was just so eager to get my recording devices back, my phone, my voice recorder, my um, my camera, of course, and, you know, and show the footage of what happened because I thought I had gotten the whole thing. Turns out they deleted, they erased all of my devices. <laughs> And I was able to to uh, to get uh, some of it back, not all of it. And I, I produced a video of it that showed exactly what happened uh, leading up to it um, and how they attacked me, you know. And the person who attacked me, uh, he figured his name does not appear anywhere in the court documents. Their their statement of facts, you know, that they swore to, doesn't mention this man, you know, who who was the the real uh, attack dog in in the whole thing. So, um, but I think that was an exceptional situation. That was just a bad day. We, we really should have walked away from it when we saw how aggressive they were. Um, in general, you know, people don't get, uh, you know, arrested very much when during jury rights, pamphleting and activism. Well, let's touch on uh, different types of activism because there, you know, um, I've gotten a little bit heat for this because I said some things that got misunderstood. But I'm particularly one who thinks, and I'm not projecting this on George or Jim, either one. This is just my opinion. But I'm one that, that doesn't think that there's any particular reason to go and uh, uh, protest or you know do any kind of activism if your purpose is to change government and make government more palatable. I think uh, I think you can do that. I think it can be accomplished, but I think in the long run it's counterproductive. But I think that if you can do either protest or you can do any kind of activism or whatever that can display the absurdity of government. And a good example of this I've used over and over was when Eddie Free and some of the folks uh, danced down at the Jefferson Memorial. It wasn't because they wanted the legal ability to dance at the Jefferson Memorial. It was it was for the purpose of demonstrating how utterly ridiculous and arbitrary that the rules and the laws of government are. And that's the thing with this. You know, uh, George wasn't doing anything he, he was not breaking any laws. He was completely following the law. And yet the government goons felt perfectly comfortable in coming out and them breaking the law, them violating George's rights, them attacking George, them violating his property rights, and uh, and then covering it up and attempting to wipe it out like it didn't happen or whatever. And even in the long run, George was forced to either you know, face uh, punishment – 
or accept a lesser thing, which now it's down to, you know, you're trying to get the best you can out of the situation to to not suffer any more than possible. So, you know, you've got a cavity in your tooth. Uh, you could just yank the whole tooth out, but if you can just have a little bit of drilling and maybe salvage the tooth, well, that drilling is not comfortable, but it's certainly better than the alternative. And that's kind of what happens when a person is forced to take uh, a plea bargain like that. It's not it's not necessarily always the best to fight uh, right to the end and, you know, die with your sword in your hand. Sometimes it's better to be able to pull back a little bit, take a few blows, and be able to fight another day. And so, you know, uh, so you don't have to, like George was saying, you don't have to take this all the way to the mat and uh, make a big deal out of it or whatever. On the other hand, that type of activism where you're showing the absurdity of government, if as long as you go into it knowing you know what you're facing, then I don't have a problem with that. That's perfectly fine. It's very useful. George's videos were very useful. Everything that George went through is very useful for us. And now George lives to fight another day. So in the long run, it's a win-win situation. George got to... Um, show the absurdity of government, show that even following the rules doesn't mean they won't attack you and, and violate your rights. Uh, and yet, George is able to come out the other end uh, and fight another day and, and, you know, bring this battle back to them again and again and again. And it doesn't, it's not necessary uh, to go in with the thought that I'm going to go down there, we're going to film it, I'm going to get beat up for the co- you know, by the cops, and uh, and I'm going to feel good about this because I got beat up. Well, that's that's not the purpose. Um, although I'm not saying don't do that for that purpose. Sometimes that's really good video, but uh, but certainly go into these things knowing what to expect, knowing what the consequences are going to be, and being. Um, comfortable with the consequences if you're going down that path but we don't have to go that way we can put up the signs we can put up um, things in, on subway uh, landings uh, you know signs and subway landings at uh, bus stops we can we can fight this thing without getting busted in the head and having our equipment stolen and uh, and that's kind of what we're looking at right now in the activity in New York City. And this is at a time that's critical to people who live in New York and are watching what's going on with the New York Police Department. Uh, having a jurist going in thinking, oh, crap, I'm going to be stuck on this jury. I have no choice. i got to do this. But to have some kind of hope handed to them so that they can sit there in the hours and hours of boring, do-nothing, dead time before a, a trial actually starts, they can read this pamphlet and realize, you know, I don't have to just sit here and nod my head and let this person go to jail. I can actually do something about it. And that's not, it's kind of like giving food to a homeless person. You're not solving their problem, but you're keeping them alive another day. And that might give them the opportunity to solve the problem later. So I don't look at a fully informed jury association. I don't look at uh, jury nullification as the end all and be all of of everything that uh, culminates into the answer to the to the justice problem, but I see it as like you know handing a sandwich to a hungry person and saying you know live to solve your problem another day. Here's a sandwich that'll keep you alive, and that's kind of what I see as uh, jury nullification is. It's a way that a person not necessarily can win. 
but you can let a person live another day without being in jail. Um, George, is, George, am I at all uh, in line in my thinking in that with, with your experience? Absolutely. But even beyond that, uh, a lot of people in the libertarian community have had brushes with the law uh, at one level or another. And a lot of them credit that with their, 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 you know, um, their coming over to libertarianism. And so I think that uh, all of these people, these millions and millions of people who have encounters with the injustice system on a daily basis are prime candidates for becoming libertarians, you know. You have a comfortable dad who works at a, at a, uh, you know, a defense, uh, contractor in the suburbs with, you know, his house and his two cars and whatever. These people are kind of people are comfortable. They like the status quo. They're not that sympathetic to messages of change. But you take someone who is down and out and suffering because under the thumb of government, that person is going to be very open to it. It's their own personal experience to see how they are being crushed over nothing at all. And so when we can connect with these people and also help them escape from that situation, then they are very interested now in what we have to say, what we're about, who we are, you know. Um, it's almost like a, like a debt has been created of a sort. And so these people are prime candidates to join our communities to become new libertarians, new libertarian activists, community leaders, people who will pass on the message to others in their communities, communities where we currently have uh, really no presence, no reach, and perhaps communities who are overwhelmingly liberal right now, you know, Libertarians are known as, you know, the top hat and monocle guys, you know, the big capitalists who don't care about anybody. This is an issue where libertarians can show, present, you know, concrete evidence that we do care about people, uh, you know, who are uh, under the thumb of government. And so this is not just, a, a, you know, a good act from the, the um, you know, the good of our heart. It is, but it's not just that. It's also a way that we can grow this libertarian evolution uh, and, and have more influence and more power. You know, there's an old phrase uh, that says, uh, strike when the iron is hot. And uh, so with so many phrases that come to us from antiquity, uh, a lot of people don't understand a lot of them because the activity involved has become antiquated and we no long, it's no longer relevant to society. So... In the situation with the phrase "strike while the iron is hot," if if you are a person, if you're if you're a metalsmith, if you deal with uh, you know with hot iron or hot whatever the 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 metal is, you know that if you want to form the the metal in the shape that you want uh, to ultimately have it, you have to get it to a certain level of heat. Now, a person who's doing uh, ironworks, if if you're experienced in that, you know the particular glow that iron will take on when it becomes the level of malleability where you actually can pound on it and not break it and pound on it and not just waste your time. You can pound on it and make it form in the shape that you want it to form. 
And that is uh, when the iron is at that right temperature, and it, it takes on this specific glow. Now, right now, there's a fire burning in every major city in the United States, and to a lesser extent, every city in North America. These things are going on in 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 a different way, but they're but they're happening in Mexico. They're happening in other North American countries as well. But there's a fire burning in the cities that runs the risk of going out of control. And just um, unnecessarily demolishing things and being uh, quenched very violently. Uh, that's I'm trying not to speak too vaguely, but let's just take the stuff that's going on in uh, St. Louis. If that situation gets too hot, the government will just come in with power and authority. And they will round up and they will kill and they will beat down and they will burn blocks and they will do whatever they have to do to quench that. And not quench it with water by putting out the heat, but by pounding it down until there's no will for resistance left. This is what we've seen over and over. This is what they did with the move people in uh, Philadelphia back in the 70s. Um, It's what they do. It's how the government reacts to these situations. And so what George is talking about here is an option for these people that is not uh, violent. It's not stand up, you know, uh, kick over cars, kick over trash cans, burn shops. It's not that. That is not the answer to this situation. The answer is as simple as people within the community reject the convictions and and it's Almost, I mean, it's so simple, it's almost like magic. The people within that community are the ones that are going to be the, 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 uh, who are tapped for jury duty. And people within that community can have the power to say, no, I'm not going to convict on this. And all it takes is one in 12. Just one to keep their mouth shut. Don't mouth off to the judge. Don't let him know what you're going to do ahead of time because they'll just remove you from the jury pool. Uh, the same way with the with the prosecuting attorney, if he gets the hint that you're going to do that, he'll just remove you from the jury pool. But if you know what you're doing and you can stay quiet and you can just go in there and put up with all the nonsense of the jury, and then when it comes down to the vote time, you say no. And when communities and when inner city communities understand this power that they hold in their hands. Then all of a sudden, not only do they have an avenue uh, towards at least a breath of fresh air, but also we have an, al- an an avenue to share with them the message that we hold, and and that is uh, what George is talking about there. That is so critical because it's bringing this message to a whole group of people who have literally no concept of what a libertarian is, what what the zero aggression principle is, what our understanding of property rights are, and how a world could function without having that thin blue line existing, without that line at all, without there being the blue uniforms and the badges. They can't conceive of that happening, but we have that knowledge. And this is a time when the iron is hot, and we can strike now by bringing this information to them. And this is a perfect way to do it. The the inner cities are crying out for an answer. And we're sitting in luxury. We're sitting on this answer. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I just talked myself out, guys. Go for it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We have so much, we have so many opportunities as libertarians, and I feel that uh, we squander a lot of it just sitting on Facebook or just wallowing in despair. And I, I'm as guilty as anyone else. Yeah, well, go ahead, Jim. Oh, I, I was just going to say, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, these are, this is the, 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 the ultimate agenda is to use, you know, use these types of, of causes to, to show people, uh, solutions, show people that there is this other way. I mean, yeah, people are all upset about police, but, you know, I haven't heard anybody say, you know, maybe we shouldn't have this police monopoly on, on, in mainstream conversations. Um, they're thinking, well, let's get this training right, or we need to get these, uh, rest statistics more racially balanced. And, you know, like they, nobody really gets it. <laughs> you know, nobody's, nobody's, nobody's looking at the, at the core problems, which libertarians are aware of. Um, but I've always enjoyed, you know, sort of trying to, trying to bring, uh, libertarianism into di- different issues. Um, one of the the ones that we have a lot of opportunities for is um, is eminent domain around Philly. They just love to just grab people's property for for whatever stupid thing the politicians want to do. And I, I just happen to notice, like I, you know, we get these um, we get these like pleas for help. You know, like once people kind of find out, like you you know you're you're involved in, in different things. You get these like calls for help. And I just got, I, I just happened to glance at my messages while we were talking and I see a message from, from a guy that, um, uh, a restaurant owner who's getting his property seized in Philly. And, and we, we did a big campaign to try to, to try to help save his property. Um, and we failed on that one. But sometimes, sometimes, you know, sometimes we, you know, we can rally support around these guys and they win, but this guy lost. Um, but I, I see a message from him and I'm, it was just, just thinking, you know, as, as you were saying that about the friends that I've made, um, in these types of projects where they're, um, of all different political persuasions, but, but they know me as the guy that, that showed up to, to help them and stood with them in their community. Um, they don't care if I'm a libertarian. They don't care, you know, what my views are on, on, on economics or, or anything, but they know that, um, you know, that, you know, the, the, the city, you know, had attacked their community and, you know what, and those libertarians, you know, they, they came and stood with us. So. I'd love to, I'd love to just kind of, you know, continue those relationships and build more of those. One of the things that I regularly talk about, um, you know, uh, if there's a person, um, anybody who has asthma knows exactly what I'm, uh, talking about in this comparison. But if you have a person who is walking around their daily life and they've never had a problem with choking or they've never been short of breath or they've never had to experience asthma or they've never had, you know, any kind of illness that caused them not to be able to breathe. Uh, you walk around life and you don't notice air. I mean, you don't think about air. You don't think about breathing. The part of your brain that controls breathing does so without communicating to the rest of your body. It just sits down there and does its thing. And you just breathe and you don't think about it uh, day after day after day. It's only when you can't breathe that all of a sudden breathing becomes unbelievably important, so important that you will thrash around, you will fight, you will do whatever it has to be done in order to get a breath. And freedom is kind of like that. You know, George mentioned 
the people sitting in their comfortable job and their comfortable life and their comfortable house with their comfortable mortgages and their comfortable car loans and their comfortable in in their comfortable you know upper middle class uh, mega school that their comfortable children attend and they and they don't really face they have no clue what the what the justice system is like because if they ever face the justice system it's going to be to pay you know a, a minor traffic ticket or something they're going to end up probably mailing the thing down there they're not going to have to go through um what sometimes people in the inner city face on a daily basis which is the constant intimidation of the cop coming down the street looking at every set of eyes like you know like are you guilty are you guilty are you guilty People in comfortable suburbs do not have to deal with that. A cop, come, a cop drives through a typical uh, upper middle class suburb. It's probably because he's called there for a reason or he's cutting through to get from one place to another or he's leaving his own house to go out to work. These are the reasons why a cop drives through an upper middle class suburb. He does not, the cop does not drive through the upper middle class suburb, driving real slow, making eye, eye contact with every single resident. But that's what inner city people face. They face that level of intimidation every day. And for us to be, uh, and that that's what I'm talking about. That's their lack of breath. They can't breathe a free breath. Every time they go downtown to do this or they go over to the grocery store to do that or every time that they, you know, catch a bus, every time that they're out in public, they risk having a cop come up to them and ask them their business. Why are you here? What are you doing? Are you carrying anything you need to tell me about? And your average upper middle class person never faces that. So they they and much of libertarian, if you want to call it libertarian outreach, involves Libertarians, and, and caps are the same way, we sit on Facebook and we argue with these people in their, uh, you know, uh, McMansions, and we, we go point by point and try to theorize and, and we try to, you know, analyze their argument and we try to uh, show them how they're, they're founded on uh, logical fallacies and, they're, and all that. I'm not saying anything of, of that is bad, but if you really want results, talk to somebody who can't breathe. That's who wants air, and and that's what we offer. We offer uh, a sociological change in everything that can breathe that can bring breathable air to everyone, and that you know that is desired the most by the people who can't get enough air. Amen. In the end, it's it's all about the marketplace, you know. Um, Libertarianism is a set of ideas. Uh, there are customers for those ideas. We have to go out and, and find those customers, connect with them, uh, package the ideas in a way that is useful to them, that is a solution to the problems they face. And uh, that is when we are really going to have uh, success. We can't have the kind of success we want. We can't make the kind of changes that we need. Uh, we can't build the kind of society, you know, and get the state to back off and all that until we have more broad-based support. And for that, we need to get more customers. Yeah, exactly. We need to sell our product to the people who want to buy it, even if they don't know that they want to buy it. You know, the, the very first – I heard that somebody was talking about the fax machine. I can't remember who that was not long ago. 
that talked about whoever it was that had the first fax machine, what a useless piece of crap this thing is, you know, unless you can get other people with fax machines. But once you get enough people with fax machines, then it becomes a really useful item. And, of course, we've moved beyond that in, in technology now. But the same thing could be uh, argued with the cell phone. You know, if you could just pop into 1850 and say, hey, check it out, guys. i got this cell phone. It's really cool. You can do this and this and this with it. And they would look at it like, what are you, nuts? That does nothing. There is no internet. You have no one to call. You have no network towers. There, you know, it does nothing. It blink, it's a blinking light. You have a fancy blinking light that's going to run out of its battery in a few hours. You have nothing. But once you take the product to a market that's hungry for it, and you educate that market that this indeed is the product you're looking for, then uh, you know the old thing about the uh, build a better mousetrap and they'll and they'll uh, beat a path to your door. We have a better mousetrap. All we have to do is inform them that we have it. I mean, it's really that simple. Well, I think we have to do more than that because I think for years uh, libertarians have been putting out uh, newsletters and newspapers and books and articles and blog posts and whatnot showing that you know we have that superior product. But like a good salesman, I think we have to go out there and beat the path to uh, the doors of the people that we want to reach. And uh, jury rights pamphleting and the ads and whatnot are are one way to do that. But I think really, um, you know, we have to connect with people uh, in those communities that we want to reach. We have to build relationships and alliances with them. We have to support them. We ha- and but most importantly, we really have to listen to them because um, you know we can take our pure libertarian philosophy. And try to shove it down other people's throats, but, um, you know, if like that may have no, it may, it may be like speaking, uh, Greek, you know, to a, uh, to a Russian, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. They're like, you know, you have no idea what you're talking about. But when you listen to people and you understand the kind of problems they face, uh, then you can frame the message in a way that makes sense to them. You know, I don't know if you guys have talked about this or not, but uh, there's a real problem in the U.S. with whenever one of these cops, you know, wherever that they may be, they do something really horrible. They beat somebody up or they, they do whatever it is that the cop does. And then it goes before a grand jury and the grand jury decides whether or not uh, that the that the case will be pursued. And it's a real high likelihood when a when a cop's case goes before a grand jury, it's a real high likelihood that the grand jury will let them off. And then the prosecutor can just raise his arms and say, hey, sorry, I took it to the grand jury and they refused it. And so we have to let the cop go. And and this is something that, you know, we've seen over and over and over again. But I, I think um, what's actually happening there is in essence that the cops are using jury nullification on grand juries without even realizing that that's what they're doing. Because that's all it takes on a grand jury. A grand jury is looking at at, at uh, whether or not to prosecute a cop for beating up somebody. All it takes is one of the grand jury members to say, no, I, I say no, don't prosecute him. And so in essence... They're using jury nullification today. They're already using it against us, if you can put it as a us and then kind of an argument. Uh, so, you know, why wouldn't we uh, 
use it the other way around. Use it on them. Well, I think also they stack they stack the deck, you know, with grand juries, uh, and they have many tactics for stacking the deck of the jury pool. You know, they they're supposed to pull uh, pull people, uh, you know, peers, you know, as many you know from as wide of a net as they can, but they frequently limit based limit it based on um, you know perhaps they may only select from property owners or driver's license holders. So, um, and they, they probably have other tactics, you know, to get like former government employees or former cops or whatever into these things, um, in a way that, uh, you know, that, that is not transparent to outsiders. And so really the, they, the deck is stacked for them as well. It really is. Uh, one of the things they'll do, um, if anybody who's been through the jury process knows this, they'll go through uh, a whole series. You go in, first off, you know, you go into this room and you sit around and you have to fill out questionnaires. And um, and it is unbelievably boring. And then after a while, then they come in and they talk to you a little bit. And then they shuffle you to another room. And then, and you, you sit in uncomfortable chairs in that room where they ask you more questions. And then eventually you go before the judge and then you have to stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down. And you go through all this ridiculous, uh, ritual. And the whole system to me seemed like it was made for the purpose of making me feel like I was very small and the judge and the uh, prosecutor and the, even the, the defense attorney, it, it seemed like the system was made to make it seem like they were the experts and you are a very small aspect of this and you need to essentially um, stay in line and be where you're supposed to be. And, you know, there was, uh, in my case, there was, um, uh, what are they called, the uh, the uh, cops that serve the court. Uh, I can't remember the terminology. But they surround you the whole time. Uh, it, and, and it's kind of intimidating having these people. First off, you have to be disarmed to go into these things. And yet all of the clowns in there in their uniforms are armed, which is uh, a little bit upsetting for a person who's accustomed to not being disarmed. So all of these things are going on for the purpose of intimidating the juror. And then the juror gets in there and there's so much pressure. There's so many questions to root out the ones they don't want. And then there's so much pressure to, uh, you know, to function with everybody else and get the, uh, to, to convict this bad guy. And that's kind of an overriding assumption that's given to you the whole time that you're going through it. It's really an uncomfortable process. I can imagine. Yeah. Well, I mean, everything about the whole process. I mean, look at the costumes they wear, you know, the, the special dress on a, on a guy, um, I don't think they wear wigs anymore, but I wouldn't, you know, <laughs> but, you know, this special costume and people standing up when he enters the room and calling him by this like title of nobility and and, you know, hats must be removed and, and just all of these weird rituals that that people, you know, are, are have inflicted upon them just to, so it's like, well, gee, I wonder who's the authority figure here. You know, he's got a giant logo behind him. Wow. <laughs> he's sitting, he's sitting up two feet higher than everybody else. Um, you know, and then he, then he starts barking out instructions to people. And, and of course, you know, 99.9% .9 of jurors are just going to obey. I mean, I heard a judge tell the jury one time, you know, now don't you go home and look up the law. I tell you what the law is. Okay. <laughs> 
Like, <laughs> I mean, the arrogance, the arrogance of these people is just without limit. It is absolutely without limit. You know, uh, I'd kind of be, uh, I'd, I'd kind of be selling you guys short if I didn't give you opportunities also to shout out, uh, for any other projects or, cause I don't want to sound like, you know, Jim Babb and George Donnelly are the jury rights people and that's all they do. Um, both the, both of these guys are, uh, active in many ways in the whole liberty mission, in getting the word out in different ways. Um, George, uh, tell us uh, in a little bit of time we have left some of the uh, other projects that you have uh, going on in your life. Well, um, at uh, shieldmutual.com, I defend uh, the victims of government from uh, government aggression. And uh, I recently wrote a libertarian novel that is doing quite well called Lando Cruz and the Coup Conspiracy. It's available on Amazon. I also recently organized, uh, edited, and contributed a couple stories to the first libertarian science fiction anthology in uh, more than a decade now called Defiant She Advanced. Monday night, uh, Wendy McElroy, J.P. Medved, uh, my co-authors, and myself um, are doing a uh, chat on liberty.me. That's at 9 p.m. Eastern Monday night. Um, Defiant She Advanced is on Amazon. It's uh, just $3, and it's done very, very well. Uh, I blog at morelibertynow.com, and uh, my latest project I'm working with Jim is uh, the jury rights, uh, excuse me, juryrightsproject.com. And the basic idea here is that we're going to use um, online uh, media and channels of communication to educate people about their jury rights uh, without ever having to go uh, near a courthouse. So we have an educational uh, component to that, which you can access at jrp.io, uh, which is the, the Jury Rights 101 course. So it's a good idea to sign up uh, for that. You'll get a lesson uh, every week uh, or so via email, real short lesson, and over time you'll become an expert. Cool. Uh, Jim, you have anything you want to give a shout-out to, any projects or uh, anything like that? Well, um, you know, I... I guess my main project right now is trying to keep my own kids out of government school. <laughs> <laughs> well, having met your daughter, she's pretty amazing. Uh, I I think you're doing pretty good. Well, that's that's my full time project is to uh, is to just make sure that I've got uh, you know two awesome daughters that 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 uh, are not being indoctrinated by the state and yeah that's working out great. So uh, that's my that's my primary project. Um, Working with George on this stuff, I mean, I love to work with George on anything. Um, it just seems like when when and I told him when we first started doing this, it's like you know, when we when we team up on stuff, uh, authority figures tend to get grumpy, you know. So, <laughs> so I, I, I always enjoy that, you know. What was uh, it? Uh, George got attacked by was it Whoopi Goldberg or one of those wacko Hollywood types that claimed he was a, a terrorist? You remember that? Yeah, well, she attacked both Jim and I. She said we were terrorists. And oh, she named jo Jim also? Yeah, and then Joy Behar said that uh, we should be on a watch list. Yeah, well, that's quite a compliment. Oh, it was wonderful. Um, you know, but I've been trying really hard since then to be condemned by somebody a little bit better. You know, I, I, <laughs> I, I <laughs> that was well, you impressive, know, you know. The TSA administrator, uh, John, administrator, John Pistol, he said that we were irresponsible. So. <laughs> oh, come on. You can do better than that. 
<laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It, it, it was encouraging, but yeah, I, I'm definitely feeling like it's anticlimactic. I, I would like, you know, like a presidential condemnation or something, you know. <laughs> One of these days, we'll get it. Yeah, or at least somebody a little bit, a little bit, you know, let's just say a better actor than Whoopi Goldberg, okay? <laughs> you know, somebody's maybe taken a lesson or so. Yeah. You know, and, and the, the, you know, the ironic thing, and I forget who first pointed this out, but like, wow, Whoopi's, Whoopi's calling you a terrorist? You know, but have you seen Sister Act 2? <laughs> <laughs> if that's not terrorism. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, George, uh, you're still living safe somewhere off in uh, – uh, are you still being George of the Jungle, living off somewhere safe? Yes, yes, although it's not a jungle here. It's a pretty dense urban area in uh, Medellin, Colombia. But um, <clears throat> my son and I are planning a return to uh, the U.S. Uh, sometime soon, probably within a year or so. Oh, really? Wow, that's yep. That's good news. Now, um, uh, I think I saw a headline that uh, uh, Julian that there was some kind of a decision made on Julian's case or something like that. Am I am I missing it on that? Uh, I heard seen something from a few years ago that was recently recirculated. Oh, that could be. But yeah. I heard that uh, his his pending situation got resolved, and so he's returning or has already returned from Israel to the United States. I think returned. Jim knows more about it. Yes, he has. He has returned. I was really excited to hear that. So, um, gonna gonna try to hopefully hook up with him in the next month or two um, when he has some time and you know catch up on what he's been up to. Um, the, the the guy deserves a break though. If he oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. he has he has he has paid his his dues, and if he never does any more activism, he we still owe him uh, a debt of gratitude for the hard work that he's done. Absolutely. Uh, he's not a, you know, he's not a spring chicken anymore. He's not a, a young man. This is, in many ways, this is a young man's battle. And, uh, you know, he's taken risks that a, a lot of young people uh, would hesitate to take. So I, I really appreciate the work that he's done. But he, he's a fighter, though, and he's young at heart. So I don't think he'll be able to resist, you know, as long as he's walking around, he's not going to be able to resist it. Uh, you know, that's Julian. Yeah, <laughs> probably true. Probably true. Well, do we want to cover anything else? Well, I've got. Uh, I, I I'm hesitant to. I mean, the the team that we got here on the on the phone or on Skype. Uh, I'm hesitant to let you guys go. It's like you know, holding on to uh, the 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 last that that last sip of a soda in a in a in a cup. You know, you're like slurping with the straw, wanting to get the last bit out of there because you just can't come to grips with the fact that it's over. <laughs> you're too kind. I'm enjoying this as well. Yeah. Well, um, you know, let me just throw out my thanks to uh, to your work to your work, Ben. Um, I've always been a fan of the the Bad Quaker podcast and the Freedom Fiends. Uh, the episodes with you are some of my favorites. Um, outstanding work. I just just I just love it. Try not to miss an episode. It's great. Well, I appreciate that, and you know, all ego fluffing is uh, is appreciated. <laughs> but no, you know, I, I I try to. You know, I've said uh, oftentimes um, that I didn't do the Bad Quaker podcast. Uh, this I don't know if this how the, how this sounds to other people, but I didn't do the Bad Quaker podcast for the purpose of advancing liberty, or or because I wanted people to get the message, or because. I actually did the Bad Quaker podcast um, 
to get it out of my head to because I felt like I had to say these things. Otherwise, my head was just going to explode. I was going to, you know, um, I was driving people around me. I was driving them crazy by just constantly preaching in every direction. So it, it's been a real um, event for me for the last few years to be able to go through these things and say them and get them off my mind. And, you know, uh, be able to relax afterwards and say, yeah, I said that. I did that. Okay. Now I can do something else. <laughs> and it's been incredibly valuable. And I'm looking forward to seeing you and Michael uh, team up. You guys are both two great guys, very intelligent, very well-spoken. And I, I can I can kind of identify, you know, with what you're saying about just wanting it to get out. Uh, you know, I... I do, I do my getting it out mostly through my writing. And, you know, when I can produce, um, you know, a piece of writing that I feel really communicates where I am at or what I want to say, it just, it just feels really good. It really does. It's a, it's a self-satisfying thing. And in other words, even if you, if nobody ever hears it or nobody listens or nobody reads it or whatever, uh, there's just something that feels good about getting it out of you and, and getting it down on paper or getting it recorded or whatever. Yeah, really, it really does. Well, gentlemen, I want to really thank you for coming on the show with me. Uh, it's kind of nice to, you know, wrapping this up, having the kind of guests that I'm having on here at the end is uh, really cool. Um, talking to you guys over the years has really been good I, I hope we'll continue to do that after the bad quaker thing is gone that we'll still uh uh be able to communicate and everything and of course uh you know i assume that's the case because there's you know uh like with jim um i've seen him at several functions where there was no recording going on we were just able to kick things around and set things on fire and joke and laugh and things and mm -hmm. I, I hope to get to do that with you someday, George, even if I have to come to South America to do it. But, you know, <laughs> and, and according to how things change in the U.S., that might be something that's required anyway. But uh, well, the weather's great here. You're welcome anytime. <laughs> you just drive the drive the, the RV right down there. <laughs> I, I well, think right until you get to the Darien Gap, then you'll have to hire like a, a boat. Yeah. You know? Yep. Unfortunately, there's no, how could the state fail us? There's no road. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, folks, thanks for listening today. And remember to visit badquaker.com where liberty is our mission. And be sure and check out the Fully Informed Jury Association and the other links that are going to be on today's uh, show notes. And uh, be sure and support you know the work that, that George and Jim have been doing. This is really important. That's the reason that I jumped at the opportunity to bring these guys on here at the end of the uh, uh, of the series of Bad Quaker Podcasts because I really want to give positive ways that people can do stuff. And, and that's something you can do as a listener. You can get involved in these things even without, you know, going down and getting beat up at a courthouse or even without going out and chalking on a sidewalk or dancing at a, you know, at a memorial or, or whatever. You can still make an impact by supporting guys like Jim and George and their work. So thanks a lot, folks, and thanks to Jim and George. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. <laughs>